Welcome to the Real Angie Perez Podcast, where you will hear stories of health, positive mindset, and be inspired to show the world your true self as you make your dreams come true. We are honored that you are here. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome back to the Real Angie Perez podcast. I am so excited to be here today. So I have done one podcast um, by myself, but today it's even more exciting because this is my first interview and I thought I'd start off with the right foot and introduce you to someone um, that like is really been instrumental um, in my weight loss journey. I talked about my weight loss journey a little bit in my first podcast. And um, this is someone that I reached out to before I even went on um, Ed Milet's show. I knew that I needed to get my nutrition in order. And um, I reached out to this person based off of a referral from a friend and I have not been disappointed at all. So I wanted to introduce him to you guys um, and so that you can um, understand where I'm going, what I'm going through. And also if you need somebody like this, um, this is it. So, um, please welcome Tim Smith from Noble Nutrition. Tim has been, um, running Noble Nutrition for six years. He's got his bachelor's degree and his master's from App State, um, in nutrition with a focus on rural health. Um, and he's been helping everyone from athletes, triathletes, power lifters, to just people like me that want to lose some fat loss and, and get rid of diabetes or, um, you know, prevent diabetes. So he's been working with everybody. Um, there is no particular person that he gears towards. And the thing that I really love about Tim is that he's been here before. Um, he wasn't always super healthy. Like I, I hate, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say I hate taking advice from people that have never been through it, but I don't appreciate the advice as much <laughs> when they haven't been through the situation. So I really love that. Um, so welcome, Tim. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited. Um, tell me, yeah, no worries. I'm excited. This is going to be good. Um, being a dietitian, can you tell me um, a little bit about your background with nutrition, maybe your story a little bit and how you got into all of this and well, where that journey has led you. Absolutely. Um, like I said, thank you so much for having me, Angie. I really appreciate it. I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Um, with respect to me, I uh, grew up in a situation where, um, you know, Italian American household and, um, you know, had more than enough when it came to the food side of things. And as a result, um, I found myself struggling with weight um, by the time that I was maybe, I would say about, I don't know, eight years old, nine years old, something like that was when it started to really become a little bit more of an issue for me, um, you know, being exposed to bullying and, you know, things like that. And, uh, you know, ended up leaving Florida, which is where I grew up around the age of maybe 13 and um, moved to North Carolina and faced some of the same up until I got to high school. And I went to school one day and somebody made a remark that wasn't very nice. And um, it actually led to me changing my lifestyle. And initially what was a very gradual way, um, I just put on shoes and I started running. And um, from there, I started experimenting with the nutrition side of things a little bit. And uh, it was shortly after that that I went off to college. And 
in the process of running and you know working on my nutrition, I lost somewhere around 40 pounds. Um, and when I got to college, I knew that this was something that I wanted to share with other people. And initially, I was a little bit more passionate about the exercise side. So my intention was to go into physical therapy. But I ended up taking a course um, with Paul Moore at Appalachian State University. And I realized, along with a course with Dr. Lisa McNulty, um, they both kind of convinced me that this was where I wanted to put my focus instead. So I changed my major from exercise science to nutrition. And um, I ended up getting my bachelor's in nutrition from Appalachian State with a minor in chemistry and um, went on to uh, do graduate school there as well. Um, you know, got some research published in the process and uh, ended up doing my clinical rotations in different hospitals and facilities around North Carolina. And um, now I'm here with Noble Nutrition and helping people to achieve the same thing that I struggled with just a short time ago. So, and I'm really grateful That's for the awesome. opportunity too. It's um, the most meaningful part of my life right now, I would say. That's really awesome. I think that was a good decision too, by the way, because I've heard, um, maybe it came from you, maybe it came from before you, but I've heard that, you know, with weight loss, it's 80% nutrition and 20% exercise. And so you're focusing on the 80%, which is awesome, <laughs> which right. I think right. is sometimes the hardest. I, I don't know that I'll ever like do the whole running thing. I back my, my thoughts up with scripture on that because there's something about like, you know, um, those that run without someone chasing them is evil. So I like, I just, I have that on a t-shirt and everything. Like I'm justifying that for right now, so, but, but I'm there with you with the nutrition part anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Absolutely. What is, I know that you are, you're not like, so there's a difference between a registered dietitian and a nutritionist, right? Like you are a registered dietitian correct? Or like, what's the difference there? And like, where do you fall? Yeah, yes, that's, that's a really good question. Um, when it comes to nutritionists, nutritionist is kind of a, a, a very general term, it's a non credentialed term. Um, and basically, what that means is that there are a lot of places in the world where Somebody can have a high school education um, or maybe, you know, maybe not even a high school education um, and they can call themselves, you know, Bob the nutritionist and they can start telling people how to eat um, without any, you know, standardized credentialing or education. Um, so if somebody ever refers to themselves as a and, and I'm not bashing people who call themselves wellness coaches or nutritionists, you know, there are a lot of people that I've known who are wellness coaches or nutritionists that are really effective at providing therapy um, and intervention. But, you know, if you're looking for somebody who has received standardized education, and, um, you know, had to pass an exam and, you know, get um, you know, go through the process of, uh, you know, clinical rotations, getting that hands-on experience in an environment that's actually accredited. Um, you would want to seek out a registered dietitian. Um, within the last 10 years, I think the other credential that can be used is registered dietitian nutritionist. Um, so if somebody has RD or RDN, um, that, would, that would indicate that they have received that standardized education and that they have gone through all the um, necessary processes to um, show that they are competent in providing nutrition care. So that's kind of the I, idea. I knew with that, that. There was, there's lots of people out there that call themselves health coaches too. Like I've heard that term thrown around on social media a lot. And um, I actually really, that's one thing that I love about you is like you teach me 
the science behind what I'm supposed to be doing and why I eat certain things, why I should eat certain things because of the chemistry that happens in my body when it, when I do eat that thing. So that's one of the things that I really, really appreciate about you. Um, What are some top pieces of advice maybe for someone? So like, I'm probably going to put this podcast out next week, which we're in the middle of December. Right. And so everybody's wanting to eat those Christmas cookies and like all of the health, you know, the stuff that maybe not be on the plan. Like what if, what if someone's not quite ready to, to get on a full, full fledged nutrition plan? Maybe they're thinking about that in January or whatever. What steps could they take like right now if they're not quite ready, but they, they have it top of mind and you know, what, if, what nutrition advice would you give for someone that's thinking about this already in December? That's a good question. I think it's important to consider that when it, when it comes to pursuing a goal related to health, that it isn't something that has to be all or nothing. Like you don't have to be in a place where you're ready to implement an entire meal plan or record or change your entire lifestyle around you know a lot of the time it's a matter of doing what we can to approach what you consider to be the ideal anything that we can do to get closer to that and you know sometimes that might mean implementing a whole meal plan or you know recording your intake to kind of collect that data and see you know where are my calories falling where are my macros falling but if you feel like that's too much um you know, some little things that I think would be really good, start drinking more water, I think is a really good, um, you know, a, a really good, easy thing that people can do um, without having to change their whole life around. And, you know, sometimes it can see like a, seem like a monumental task when you hear these, um, you know, pieces of guidance online. I mean, there are people saying, you know, drink two gallons, three gallons of water a day. Um, then you hear other people who say if you drink, you know, 64 ounces or more per day, you're going to run into issues with cytolysis and, you know, your blood is going to be too thin or, you know, whatever it is. I, uh, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes to get good information. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping that at some point today we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about social media because I do think that social media has had a negative effect on people for that reason. It's kind of uh, um, analysis or uh, paralysis by analysis is the saying rather, um, you know, so there's so much information available. You don't really know, but I think, Shooting for at least a good 64 ounces of water per day is a really good, easy thing that you can do to improve your metabolism, improve the way that you feel. And anything that we can do to approach the ideal is good. And water is a really important part of that. I put water and proper hydration on the same footing as stress management or adequate sleep. So I think things like that, um, you know, getting in the habit of getting some kind of activity in. And you raised a really good point, Angie, that about 80% of, well, the saying that we used to say in the gym was 20% of fitness is in the gym, 80% is in the kitchen. So with that in mind, you know, exercise isn't the majority, but it is something that you can do to kind of, you know, supplement a good diet. And again, move toward the ideal. And that could be just a 20 minute walk a few times a week. Um, I was listening to a discussion. My favorite podcast is actually the Huberman Lab. So anybody listening to this, I'm sure that you like podcasts. 
Um, I can't recommend the Huberman lab enough. Um, and he was, he had a guest on Dr. Peter Adia, um, and they were talking about, and I think Andrew, we've talked about this in our session, um, one of our sessions before, but they were looking at a uh, review of all the evidence that's been collected on exercises association with um, your risk of dementia and Alzheimer's in old age. And after review, what they found was 15 met hours of exercise per week, which is the equivalent of about three to four 30 to 40 minute walks on a weekly basis resulted in on average a 45% reduction in your risk of developing Alzheimer's and dementia as you age. So it's not to say that, and I think this is one of the biggest things. I think there are a lot of people, and we'll probably almost certainly talk about this before the end of our discussion today, but I think there are a lot of people that understand that they have to abuse themselves in the gym um, in order to get where they want to be. And again, I think social media feeds into this. But in reality, two, three walks a week, 30, 40 minutes a piece is way better than none. So, you know, drinking your water, getting in a couple walks a week, um, and then being conscious of, you know, some of the nutritional landmines. I think these are, I think, okay, so nutritional landmines first it's a term a term that i've coined um and the idea is that a nutritional landmine is something that has the potential to derail our whole mission of achieving our goals but we don't know that they're there and i think that there's two primary nutritional landmines that a lot of people kind of struggle to wrap their heads around um number one is going to be fat and oil now when it comes to calories calories are a measure of energy and everything that we do right now, since I've been on this discussion with you, I've probably burned somewhere around 50 calories or 100 calories. Um, so every time that we move our hands, every time that we talk, our, our heart is beating all the time, our lungs are breathing, kidneys are filtering, all that stuff uses energy. So if we are always using energy, if we don't replace it through food, eventually we expire. So you have to replace that energy that you use from food, and we can only get calories or that energy from three sources, which are carbs, proteins, and fats. Um, each of these macronutrients, your carbs, your proteins, and your fats have a caloric allotment, a number of calories per gram. So a gram of carbohydrate has just four calories per gram. So if you have 100 grams of carbohydrate, it's 400 calories. Fair enough. Protein is the same way. It's going to be four calories per gram. But when we look at fat and oil, fat and oil has about nine calories per gram. And the significance of that is, well, like I said, if you have 100 grams of protein, that's 400 calories. If you have 100 grams of fat or oil, it's almost 1,000. And I think that people understand that there are healthy fats and oils, you know, your fish oil, your olive oil, avocado oil, things like that. And they're healthy because they reduce inflammation. And as a result of reducing inflammation, they reduce chronic disease risk. Um, they can also positively influence your serum lipids, increasing your good cholesterol and all that stuff. But if you have a teaspoon of olive oil or a teaspoon of margarine or shortening, they're both going to have the same number of calories, which are double that of carbohydrate and protein. So I think one really easy place to allocate focus for somebody who's overwhelmed with making a big lifestyle change is be conscious of the amount of oil that you're using in your cooking. I think that a lot of people are getting a lot more calories than they think because their plate looks good. They're eating a lot of vegetables, lean protein, but if you're cooking those vegetables with, let's say, two or three tablespoons worth of olive oil, it's a healthy oil, but it still has a ton of calories. So I think that's an area to put focus on. The second nutritional landmine, not to neglect that one, 
I would say is alcohol um, for similar reasons, because alcohol really is kind of like the fourth macronutrient in addition to carbs, proteins, and then fats and oils, we have alcohol. Um, alcohol has a caloric uh, density of about seven calories per gram, but that's ne neglecting all the negative effects that come from alcohol, reduced testosterone, um, you know, reduced ability to make decisions under the influence, which can lead to maybe splurging in a way that, you know, maybe you don't really reflect on quite as much. Uh, alcohol is the only substance that we know of where a person can make poor choices, um, but they don't really care about the fact that they're making a poor choice. There's no other substance that we know of that seems to have that effect. Um, you know, so oil and alcohol and, and along with oil, fats, you know, your butter, margarine, stuff like that, I think are good places to focus on. And one big piece too, um, especially coming into the holidays is, uh, don't avoid starches, um, you know, for just for the love of God, like eat your starch. Um, <laughs> starch is really important. Um, we've talked about this ad nauseum, which I think is why you're laughing about it. Um, Cause you know, I'm sure people have heard of liver King. Um, you know, I always tell people that if I had a social media personality, I'd be starch King. Um, Cause I do think that starch is really important. And a lot of people neglect to consider that, you know, your body's number one source of energy is glucose. So if you don't get enough glucose, your body's going to send you signals to get whatever you can get within arm's reach to get glucose. And a lot of the time that involves chips and crackers and sweets, stuff like that. So, you know, what I work on with people and Angie, I think I've told you this, you're probably tired of hearing me say it, but we want to eat proactively to avoid eating reactively. Right? right. And I think that in the spirit of that, if we avoid starch, which is your body's I mean, it's the number one place where we get our glucose from. And considering that glucose is your body's number one preferred source of energy, if we cut starch out altogether, it's really going to increase the likelihood that later you're going to overeat starch. It's almost like we, we kind of like torque the fabric of your nutrition earlier in the day. And because your blood sugar gets low later in the day, it all kind of snaps back undone and you end up actually eating more as a result of trying to eat less. Does that kind of yeah, make sense? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I, you make up so. so many good points because through the holidays too, especially, you know, people drink more alcohol <laughs> and they, Absolutely. because of parties and whatever else, um, we eat more things that have fat and, um, you know, the, all the Christmas cookies, but you know, I know that I have the tendency of having that personality of all or nothing and I'm either all the way in or I'm all the way out, one of the two. And I, I struggle to find that balance and especially in a season like right now where, you know, we all know I don't want to run and we all know that I want to eat the Christmas cookies. So like, how do I not go off you the both. complete dim deep end, right? And, you yeah. know, part of it is, like you said, drinking water and going for a walk. I mean... Maybe have a Christmas cookie. I mean, you know, and then drink your water and, and and still enjoy the holidays. That's the one thing that like, and this is a question that, you know, we may talk about too, is like, for me, I've lost weight three different times and I've gone up and down the roller coaster ride of weight loss for years. I mean, I remember way back when I was 10 years old, I, and we'll talk about this next too. I, I would sit there after school and eat a bowl of ice cream and a bag of popcorn every single day. Yeah. And I struggled with my weight loss, even from 10 on. Um, part of it, and this is what I want to talk about next, 
is emotional eating. Like part of that was I was lonely. I like we had stuff going on with our family and I was home by myself as a kid with nobody else around because my mom was working and my brother wasn't there and that kind of thing. So I was sitting there watching, um, what was that show back at like all the NSYNC guys were on it, the Mickey Mouse clubhouse or whatever it was, or not the clubhouse, but you know what I'm talking about. Like I would sit there and like eat a bowl of ice cream and a bag of popcorn every day and watch that show and watch Punky Brewster and all of the stuff just to deal with my emotions. And I still do that to some extent today. Like anytime, you know, I'm sad, I want to go for sweets. Anytime I'm, um, you know, wanting to celebrate, I celebrate with food, you know, or if I'm angry, I want something crunchy to eat. How does someone who finds himself emotionally eating take control basically of the food and, and stop the binge eating and like stop the correlation between emotions and food together? That's a good question. I think first it's important to understand in that situation that you mentioned about um, like the Mickey Mouse show that you were watching. It sounds like what you were doing there was developing a little bit of what we refer to in the nutrition community as a nutrition cue. Now we have good nutrition cues and we have not so good nutrition cues. So a not so good nutrition cue, for example, would be somebody who says every night I watch Netflix and while I watch Netflix, I eat Hershey's Kisses. Well, over time, what you're doing, kind of like a Pavlov's dog kind of thing, you're conditioning yourself to expect Hershey's Kisses anytime that you enjoy TV related entertainment, which is going to subconsciously influence your behavior. So I think that awareness of these nutrition cues and potentially working to replace those cues with something that's a little bit more productive can be a really good practice. Um, A lot of it is just mindfulness, like I said, just kind of understanding like what it is that's causing these interactions and like why you might be so like you might find yourself in a place where you're like, why am I always eating this thing with this other thing? Like, why am I always eating Hershey's Kisses with TV? Sometimes it takes you stepping back and understanding that those behaviors have implications Um, And sometimes they can become deep-rooted behaviors that can be kind of hard to part with at first. But by identifying them and coming up with a strategy, um, it can get a lot easier in that way. That's just one part of it. Um, I do think that more so on the mindfulness side, if I have somebody who's struggling with emotional eating, I I, I always use this example. So this is kind of an extreme example. So... um, Let's say, for example, if you were out at a restaurant somewhere or you're out in public somewhere and somebody starts coming up and giving you a hard time, um, you know, saying something, you know, something that's not nice to you and you decide to haul off. And again, this is an extreme example. I've known you long enough to know that I don't think that you would ever do this. Um, But let's say that you haul off and you sock them in the face. Right. Uh, In that situation. (laughs) (laughs) So in that situation, um, let's say that you sock him in the face, he's got a bloody nose, the cops come, they put you in handcuffs, and now you're in trouble. And ultimately, the reason why you're in trouble, I mean, we can look at the guy's actions, he came up, gave you a hard time. But if we were to look at ourselves in that situation, I think that we can agree that it's a result of not stopping and thinking before we acted, right? 
Like if you would have stopped and thought like, maybe this guy's having a hard time right now, you know, maybe his wife is sick or maybe he had a lost his job or something, you know, um, try to give them the benefit of the doubt, try to stop and think before we act in a lot of these situations, not just if you're socking somebody in the face, but in a lot of situations, when we do things where we aren't very excited about after it's a function of not stopping and thinking. And I think that for somebody who's struggling with emotional eating, like we talked about, you know, stopping and realizing that nutrition cues can have a powerful influence on the choices that we make. Also understanding that external factors as well as emotional factors um, can have a big influence on the choices that we make. So asking yourself, is there any commonality in these situations where I find myself emotionally eating that I can use as identifying criteria to keep in the back of my mind so that if these criteria are met, I know that I'm in a risky nutrition situation. And there's four areas where I really like to focus on in particular whenever doing an analysis like this. So the first one is asking yourself physically how you're feeling. Um, because in a lot of these situations when you're eating emotionally, it might be emotional eating, but it might also be because you didn't eat enough earlier in the day. So asking yourself, am I hungry? Because let's say if you missed lunch, well, there's three meals in a day typically for most people based on just the average American eating schedule. So if you miss out on lunch, I mean, that's a third of your nutrition for the day. No wonder why you're hungry. But if you realize that maybe you did have all your meals, then maybe what we want to look at next is how you're feeling emotionally. Um, are you experiencing typically in these emotional uh, eating situations, these bouts, are you experiencing any common emotions? Is it, and try to be as specific as possible. If you're doing this analysis with yourself, ask like, not just I'm feeling bad or I'm feeling mad or something like, like, what are you, is it overwhelmed? Is it, is it, is it disappointed? Is it um, fatigued? You know, so asking yourself emotionally and then also try to figure out where and when these things happen. So, you know, is it like, you know, just to kind of open myself up a little bit. Um, yesterday evening, I was up a little bit late uh, doing some work and I splurged on some whales crackers. I think I've told you that that's kind of my Achilles heel. Or the, yeah. Uh, yeah, the whales crackers. So um, I found myself digging into a box of those last night. And, I, you know, whenever I do that, it's typically going to be... Um, in my like kind of little office area that I have, you know, so that's kind of the location. Um, and it's usually going to be between the hours of maybe eight and 11, you know, so if you can identify like what's going on, when, where, and physically, is there any commonality, you can learn a lot about why you're doing this. And sometimes people will come in and they're sure that they're struggling with emotional eating. But in reality, maybe they're just not eating enough proactively. And again, it's in the same spirit of what we talked about before with the starch, right? We want to eat proactively so that we don't eat reactively. One thing that, that I've been, yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I've learned recently is there is a hormone, a hunger hormone that triggers um, like your stomach to basically make you think that you're hungry when you're not. So one of the things that I've dealt with is like my stomach grumbles a lot, like it's always grumbling. And so I, I, we've, I know we've talked about it a little bit. And then I talked about it with a doctor the other day and she says, you know, I think that might be a hunger hormone thing. And she named it. I can't remember what it started with, but I Googled I it. Um, I thought it was like an L something with like leptin. 
leptin it was the leptin and the gremlin or great whatever that is like the, the two yeah um and i was like okay so i researched it a little bit and i wanted to ask you about it so i'm glad we're talking about it now but like part of the the way that you turn that hunger hormone off is by eating starches like um from whole grains basically and you know the, right. the way that you're supposed to eat but a big one, the one on the top of the list with whole grains. And so that's one thing that I've been doing just this week. I haven't been tracking. I haven't been doing all that, but like I have been in every single meal having some kind of whole grain and it's curbed that hunger for me. Like, and I'm not going bonkers, like eating all the things. And so, you know, that, that has helped too. And, And I like those four points because I think, you know, a lot of times um, we sometimes we think we're hungry when we're not, but sometimes we haven't eaten enough and we need to eat. So that's that's all really good advice. Um, yeah. One thing that you mentioned earlier, too, and, you know, part of my personal stress lately and my all or nothing mentality is um, being doing this for so long and, and going up and down the roller coaster ride of, of weight loss, I sometimes get to the point where I'm like, enough is enough. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I don't want to track anything. I don't want to talk to a health coach. I don't want to do anything anymore. I'm out. And I, I get to that place. And I told you actually, before we started recording, it's like, I I'll delete everybody off of my, my social media that has anything to do with weight loss or health, because I do follow people for inspiration and stuff. And I get to these places where I'm like, okay, enough is enough. I don't want to hear about it anymore. And it's, it's one of those things that I think that social media, like when you follow so many people, they, they have an effect on you, right? Like what effects do you think social media has on people's health? That's a really good question. We're dabbling with a lot of things, I think, right now as a society that we don't really fully understand the implications of. Some of them are a little bit more, um, you know, like there are a lot of people asking questions, for example, about electromagnetic magnetic frequencies and Wi-Fi and, you know, things like that. Because in the grand scheme of our society, they're right. Um, you know, we haven't really had these things for all that long. We don't. I'm not convinced that we really fully understand the health implications of being exposed to different wavelengths, um, you know, different EMFs and things like that. But when it comes to social media, I think that the evidence is much more clear. Um, you know, people who are on social media more um, have higher rates of depression. Um, and I think that in large part, it's because people don't realize that at least I, I think that they realize it, but they don't realize that they realize that people really only share the good stuff about their life on social mm. media. And sometimes Preach what that, that can lead sermon. to. Yeah. And sometimes what people can think is that this is just how everybody's lives are. They don't have any strife or trials or tribulations. And in reality, you know, everybody has struggles. But if you go on social media, you wouldn't know it. And you have your struggles. So what that can lead to is people thinking, well, what's wrong with me? Am I not good enough? Like, do, do I like not deserve to be as happy as these other people? And especially now with all the apps that people have, I was actually just reading something the other day about the epidemic of people photoshopping themselves into pictures of places from around the world to make it look like they're traveling the world. It's um, pretty incredible to me, you know? So I think that emotionally it can be draining. Um, and for those reasons, 
I do think that it's uh, a good idea to minimize social media. And it is something that I need to work on myself because um, I, I follow all of these mechanical engineering pages on Instagram. And um, I, so like mechanical engineering, um, like, uh, like motor sports and stuff like that. So, the, and they, they got the algorithm down to a science. So like I go on Instagram and like, I pull it up and immediately there's somebody like, you know, adding oil to an engine. And like, it's just like, it's the most fascinating thing, you know, but I, what I've done to kind of curtail that is use the screen time feature on my phone. And um, I was flabbergasted to find, um, you know, I mean, I was regularly spending whenever I first started. I mean, and, and this was between all of my apps. I do listen to Spotify, um, you know, things like that, phone time messages, but total my screen time looking at this phone every day was about seven hours a day, um, wow. which, you know, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I didn't think, I, th I thought I was doing a pretty good job. So, you know, looking at that, seeing where you're starting from, collecting that data for a couple of weeks, and then, you know, taking it from there and figuring out, like, do I want to reduce this by maybe an hour or two hours? Maybe I want to delete the app entirely. Um, you know, there are some of these apps that I think are more harmful than others. In particular, um, I think that TikTok uh, and these like real based apps where you just kind of like watch a 10 second video, scroll to the next one, scroll to the next one, scroll to the next one, you know, because entertainment throughout a lot of history required you sit down somewhere and you watch a story play out or you open a book and you read how the story plays out. There's a plot, it's cohesive, you need to keep up with everything. But I think that these apps, these TikTok apps and these real based apps, like, and, and I'm not, I'm, I'm no better. I mean, I, I don't have TikTok, um, but I might as well with the Instagram reels. It's pretty much the same thing if we're being honest. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that those reels um, are, are tricky. Um, you yeah. know, there's some funny ones, there's some cool ones, there's some that, you know, you find in it shows you a recipe that you never would have found otherwise. So there is benefit. But I think that um, it's very easy to kind of find something, you go underwater for two or three hours, you think you're on your phone for 10 minutes, and then you come out of the other side, and you're like, Oh, my God, like, where did two or three hours go, you know? Yeah, um, my husband so catches me with reels all the time. I'm sitting there just get, and that's part of the reason why I took it off my phone. It's just I will sit you. there forever and just look. And my algorithms are all messed up. Like the things that come up on my, <laughs> like they're 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 bad. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> I've got to fix this somehow. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> um, I hear you. But speaking I... of like social media and like the the fact that everybody puts their highlight reels on if someone is actually you know struggling with depression and anxiety we hear a lot about that over the holidays what are some lifestyle habits and um, things that they can do to be more effective in reducing the symptoms of those kind of diseases that's um that's a really good question. I think one that's really relevant because the rates of depression and anxiety in society are unprecedented. Um, people are more lonely and more depressed. And it's interesting because social media was supposed to connect all of us, right? Um, but in yeah. reality, it's almost kind of made us even more disconnected. Um, and there was, well, 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 maybe we can circle back around to that because there was one other thing I wanted to mention about social media that I think is really kind of the, the um, hallmark effect that social media has had on people in regards to nutrition and health. But um, with respect to your question about depression and anxiety, 
if somebody came in my office and said, Tim, I want to be as depressed as possible as fast as possible. First order of business would be telling them, get up at a different time every day. So if wow. you want your circadian rhythm to be as off as possible, and as a result, the rest of your body to not work as well as it could, um, you would want to get up at a different time every day. So maybe one day you wake up at seven, one day you wake up at 10, one day you wake up at eight, one day you wake up at noon. If your time, your awakening, awakening time kind of ebbs and flows like that, let's say any more than maybe about an hour or so, um, you are much more likely to experience symptoms of depression and anxiety. And there's three components of sleep that um, you know, we can focus on. It's the time that you go to bed, the time that you wake up, and the length in between. And I think that in order of importance, um, last is going to be the time that you go to sleep. I mean, while it is important because ultimately the time that you go to sleep is a contributor in the length of sleep that you get, um, I don't think that the time that you go to sleep is number one. It would be number three, in my opinion. Granted, I'm not a sleep expert, but this is an area that is very germane to nutrition. Um, the second most important thing would be the length of sleep that you get. And what the evidence seems to suggest, based on what I've read, um, is that seven hours is kind of that threshold. So if you get more or less than seven hours, that's going to be kind of um, the mark at which you either get really good, useful, restful sleep that promotes recovery so that you wake up the next day energized, or if you get less than seven, it is a little bit more likely that you might struggle um, with energy level the following day. But the number one, I would say, is the time that you get up in the morning. And ideally, you're getting up somewhere between, you know, uh, let's say plus or minus 30 minutes each day. So if your goal is to get up at 7 a.m. every day, I would like to see you get up somewhere between 6.30 and 7.30 consistently, regardless of which day of the week it is. If you want to give yourself one day where maybe you sleep in an extra hour or two, that's okay. Um, but I think that people who, you know, get up maybe around the same time during the week and then maybe during the weekend, you know, instead of getting up at 7, they're waking up at 12, 1 o'clock. Um, it's not every day that they do that, but I do think that even that might be often enough to encourage those depressive symptoms. Um, wow. I do think that in, in, in accordance with that as well, I think that getting exercise um, is a really effective way to reduce the symptoms of depression and anxiety. Um, there was a study that was done several years ago, and what they were looking at was how does exercise compare to Zoloft in relieving the symptoms of depression and anxiety? And what they found was that walking three times per week for about 30 minutes per walk, and keep in mind, this is not like a like a super like fast paced walk. It's just kind of going out and just kind of going for a nice smooth walk. Um, three times a week for about 30 minutes was as effective at reducing the symptoms of depression and anxiety as the lowest available dose of Zoloft. So I think that exercise is really important, um, not to neglect what we talked about with social media, because especially, especially this time of the year, I think that it's very important to modulate um, your social media um, intake. But the other thing that I, wanna, that I don't want to neglect that is directly related to nutrition is vitamin D. Because vitamin D is a vitamin that if somebody was to ask me what's the most important vitamin for human health, I would say if I had to pick one, I would probably say vitamin D, both with regard to the, the breadth of roles that vitamin D fills, but also the depth of the roles that vitamin D fills. And with that in mind, uh, vitamin D is something that we have typically gotten from the sun throughout history. And a lot of people understand that we can get ample vitamin D from our diet. But in reality, 
there aren't really good sources of vitamin D in food. Um, if you have salmon, there's trace amounts of vitamin D. Um, if you have cod liver oil, there's some vitamin D in there. But where we get most of our vitamin D is from the sun. And a consideration to be made, especially this time of the year in the context of this question, is that we don't get nearly as much sun this time of the year as we do typically during the spring and summer, right? And that's without considering that people are spending more time inside anyway, regardless of what time of the year that it is. So I think it's important that if you can't get out in the sun, which you can get adequate vitamin D from the sun by sitting out in direct sunlight, contacting your skin for about 15 to 20 minutes with your arms and legs exposed. So basically sitting out in the sun for about 15, 20 minutes with shorts and a t-shirt would be adequate for you to get your vitamin D for the day. But if that's a tall order, I would absolutely encourage people to take a vitamin D supplement. A lot of people are skeptical of supplements, but vitamin D supplementation I do think is one of the few that is viable and effective for pretty much everybody, especially if you live much north of North Carolina. If you were to draw a line horizontally across the United States, the farther north that you are from North Carolina, the more likely it is that you'll need to supplement with vitamin D between the months of October and March. And the reason is because the sun doesn't penetrate the atmosphere quite the same way up that way. And as a result, vitamin D synthesis is decreased at certain times of the year, and in particular, October to March in the United States. Um, north of North Carolina, um, it might not hurt to take somewhere around a thousand, maybe two thousand international units of vitamin D per day, unless other otherwise indicated. You know, if you have some kind of a condition or some other kind of a contraindication that might suggest that's not a good idea, um, a thousand to two thousand is kind of the reference value for supplementation. That's interesting. I, I'll tell you here in North Carolina, I haven't seen the sun in probably three or four days. It's been dreary it. and rainy and nasty here. So yeah. I totally get that. Vitamin D, duly noted. All right. Yeah, it's been wet. Um, so I have two more questions for you, and then we're going to finish up. Um, you yeah. you started talking about you know supplements with vitamin D. There there's another trend going around um, that. I've noticed a lot of on social media with the people that I've watched, but uh, just in general with, in regards to protein, um, lots of, you know, alternative ways to protein, whether that be with plants, um, I've seen bugs, um, and even, you know, the, the supplements that you like protein powders and different things like that. What is your take on supplements and like artificial ways of getting protein? Yeah. So first, I think it's important to address why protein is important in large part. Um, you know, there's a lot of different roles that we can get into, you know, enzyme formation, things like that. Um, you know, the importance for phospholipid bilayer cell membrane integrity. But practically, I think it's important to understand your metabolism functioning properly in large part depends on you having adequate lean body mass, having adequate muscle. And the only thing that we can synthesize muscle from is protein. So as we get older, we experience these hormonal and kind of metabolic changes that make your body um, more naturally just kind of sacrifice muscle as you get older. So especially as we get older, I think it's really important to stay on top of protein so that you can keep your muscle um, and the reason that keeping muscle important, the reason that it's important to keep your muscle as much as possible, again, is because 
we want to make sure that your resting metabolic rate stays elevated because we know that a person with more muscle is going to burn more calories at rest. Um, but another unforeseen benefit is the fact that your muscle is very, um, it encourages insulin sensitivity. So basically, if you have a football player who has a ton of muscle and he eats 200 grams of pasta, um, his body is going to pull that pasta right out of the blood. And the reason that's important is because we don't want that sugar, that starch, just sitting and circulating around in your blood because what will happen is, and this is also, by the way, the reason that diabetes is so damaging. It's because that sugar doesn't get pulled out of the blood and delivered into your cells to be torn up and broken down into energy. It'll accumulate along the walls of your vasculature, your capillaries, your veins and arteries. And as a result, your blood vessels basically become like peanut brittle. And over time, those blood vessels can become very brittle. They break. And um, that's what you would see in somebody who has advanced diabetes who might have to have a toe amputated or their eyesight gets worse. You know, um, this is kind of what's happening is the sugar is collecting. And we can avoid all that by maintaining adequate lean body mass. And to do that, consuming adequate protein is really important. So protein supplementation in general, first of all, I think is a good idea for a lot of people because I think that um, it is hard for people to get adequate protein. So I would rather a person get adequate protein from a good, um, you know, reputable brand of whey protein isolate or something similar like that than not get enough protein at all, again, for the reasons that I mentioned before. When it comes to some of the plant-based proteins, um, and you know, another one that I've seen here more recently are these like bug, like like right? insect proteins and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's very strange to me. Um, yes. Not a fan of that. Um, and what I understand, granted, it's still pretty novel, um, but from what I understand, there are a lot of people who have an, uh, can have an allergic reaction to chitin, which is a protein found in a lot of the exoskeletons of bugs. Um, so basically, you know, it almost seems as though insect protein might not be safe. Not only might it not be effective, mm. but for some people, it might actually be dangerous. Um, with plant proteins, it's really interesting because there's this idea that we refer to probably one of the most important ideas that I have to share with people is this idea of what we call bioavailability. Um, so just to break that down, availability referring to available, bio referring to life. So what bioavailability refers to is how available for use by life is a given nutrient. So for example, let's say that you eat uh, 10 grams of chicken. Well, because we are, and, and let me ask Angie, I think that you would agree that we are more similar to animals than we are to plants, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So because we're more similar to animals than we are to plants, when we eat protein from animals, let's say about 10 grams, your body knows exactly what that protein is. It knows exactly what you want it to use it for. So if you get 10 grams of protein from chicken or steak or salmon, something like that, your body's going to be able to use about nine, nine and a half grams out of every 10 because the proteins in that chicken are so similar to the proteins that make up our own bodies. Now, let's say if in another situation, you have 10 grams of protein and keep in mind, chicken says 10 grams of protein on the label and your, uh, let's say your soy protein supplement says 10 grams of protein on the label. It might say 10 grams of protein on the label, but because it's from a plant and because we are so fundamentally different from plants, you might consume 10 grams of protein, but the way that those proteins are structured makes it such that your body might only be able to use maybe five or six grams, 
which as a result, you're losing half of the protein that you got from that supplement. And now your kidneys are actually having to filter out all that stuff, which is kind of the other negative side of consuming too much plant protein. And not to say that all plant proteins are created equal, you know, pea protein, brown rice protein seem to have uh, more promise than some of the other ones. You know, I'm not really a fan of soy-based proteins. So if you are consuming a soy-based protein, um, you might want to maybe do a little bit of research on that and see if maybe you can find something that's a little closer to maybe a pea protein or a brown rice protein. But um, I would prefer for people to get what we call HBV or high biological value proteins. And those are basically just proteins from animals. Um, I prefer um, chicken and fish to pork. I prefer pork to steak. And um, yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, but <laughs> just don't overdo it on steak. I would say that's yeah. probably a big takeaway here. Only, only a ribeye every once in a while, I guess. That's right. I, I'm That's so right. glad that you said something about that soy protein because I have had my experience with soy protein and um, I, me having a thyroid issue too, like soy and thyroid stuff just doesn't get along very well. But um, yeah. okay. So last question, and I know we got to go. Um, you have, you've been doing this for a long time now. You've, you're a registered dietitian. Um, what is one small piece of advice that you would give someone who is just, just looking to start out? Like they're, you know, they want to lose some body fat. Um, they, they're still working on getting to the working out consistently thing they don't want to go the all or nothing route. Um, but what's one piece of advice like, Hey, start here. I think. So the first thing I think is don't let perfect be the enemy of good because all we need is good. Wow. We don't need perfect. So, and if I had to say the one skill and this is after my experience working with people for the last six years. Um, I would say probably the most important skill to have in the world of nutrition is the ability to forgive yourself. Because I find that a lot of people set this expectation of I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to hit my macros every day. I'm going to hit my calories every day. Um, that's not, and, and I don't want to be a buzzkill, but it's probably not going to happen. You're going to have days where you end up eating a cookout tray or you're, you end up having a milkshake or you end up, you know, having a soda or whatever it is. Um, try not to let the happenings of today affect what happens tomorrow. And that feeds into this idea of not letting perfect be the enemy of good, because some people are so, con they're so convinced that they have to be perfect all the time that they, um, you know, kind of throw it all away. And, and, and a common manifestation of this is, you're doing really good on a diet plan or, or lifestyle change. Um, and maybe you slip up and you end up having like a couple cookies or something like that. It's a very common thing that I see where people are like, well, I already messed up. Might as well just kind of go the whole, go the whole way. Right. Um, this is, I think a really poignant example of that idea of not letting perfect be the enemy of good, being able to understand that sometimes things are going to happen. And it is also a healthy, a part of rather a healthy relationship with food to have these little splurges sometimes. Ideally, we can do our best to minimize them, sure. Um, but, you know, I think this information is important because there has to be 
like whenever you start a journey like this, some kind of an expectation that you have in your mind. And I think the mistake that a lot of people make and the reason why a lot of them get overwhelmed with the process of pursuing a goal like this, whether it's body fat loss, muscle gain, whatever it is, is because they have the expectation in their mind from the start that I need to be perfect. And if I'm not, that I'm less than. So that is really important to consider. Um, but I think that taking small incremental steps toward the ideal is the best way for somebody in that situation to handle it. And I'm probably going to do a bad idea or a bad, uh, uh, I'm probably going to do a bad job of explaining this idea. But let's say that your goals are an ideal and like this ideal is a, a ball of light. All right. And your goal starting out from here, because you're not at your ideal, right, is to go and catch that ball of light. So you achieving your goals 100% would be you approaching it, getting close enough where you can catch it, and now you have that ideal. You have obtained the ideal. In the pursuit of thinking that you, know, you have to be perfect all the time, people think that they just got to jump on top of it immediately and just catch it. In reality, well, maybe we start out by drinking a little bit of water, getting our workouts in, you know, have a good balanced breakfast every day. And what that's going to do now that you're closer to that ideal as you approach it, it's going to change your perspective on the ideal, right? Which can maybe help you to understand the ideal a little bit better, which could maybe open your eyes and make you a little bit more motivated to maybe then take some bigger steps. So I think for a lot of people, it's doing whatever you're comfortable with. Negotiate with yourself a lot like you would with, a, with a, and I don't mean this in any kind of a demeaning way, but negotiate with yourself a lot like you would negotiate with a child. You know, like if you were out in the garden and, uh, you know, say if you wanted help with something in the garden, you wouldn't just like toss a, a little kid some tools and say, here, here, kid, get to work. You know, you would say squat down on their level and, you know, get in front of them and say, hey, buddy, you know, like, what is it like? What is it that you're comfortable helping me with? And ask them and get that feedback from them and do the same thing with yourself. Ask yourself, what is something that I would do that I could do? to take a step toward that ideal so that maybe as I start approaching it, maybe my perspective on it as a result of moving closer to it changes enough where maybe at that point I'm ready to start taking some more uh, significant steps toward actually catching and obtaining the ideal. Wow, Does that make sense? that's awesome. Yes, that is amazing. This has been so good, Tim. Like, I'm, I'm so excited for people to like meet you even through podcasts. Like, this Absolutely. is this is amazing. I I want to I want to give them some information on how to find you outside of here um, because yeah. and you know I I think people should reach out to you and and that kind of thing. So your website you. is noblenutrition.info, correct? That's right. That's okay. right. And you can find there, all the information. Your Go phone ahead. number and everything is on there, right? Yeah, yeah, phone number, okay. um, email, um, all a little bit about my background. Um, some experience of people that I've worked with before on the testimonials page. I do publish a blog. Um, granted, here lately, I haven't been publishing quite as much as I would hope, but um, there's some good articles on there. Um, and then there's some social media pages as well. I'm on Facebook and cool. Instagram, uh, some good stuff on there. But if you have any questions, uh, yeah, my website is noble. That's N-O-B-L-E nutrition.info. 
That is awesome. Thank you so much, Tim. I'm so happy that you were here. Thank you so much for your time and all the info that you gave us. And um, guys, check out his website and reach out to him. Um, I know you won't be disappointed. So have a great one and we will see you next time. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Angie. Great having, great having uh, time together. I really appreciate you having me. No worries. Thank you for coming. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Real Angie Perez podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show and spreads the positivity, and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, thank you for taking the time to listen today, and we hope to catch you in the next episode of the Real Angie Perez podcast.